and welcome to Decolonising DMU podcast. This is a new and unique podcast exploring the work by De Montfort University's Decolonising DMU project. I'm Govinda Rogela and I work on the project. In the wake of George Floyd's murder in May, issues of race, diversity and inequality have begun to dominate conversations in society. But what exactly does decolonising mean? As a member of the Decolonising DMU project, I have been asked countless times by colleagues, what does it mean? How can I decolonise accounting, for example? Whilst the notion of decolonising the curriculum is a more familiar idea, decolonising a university is radically different. A number of high-profile universities have engaged in decolonising or diversifying curriculums, and some, like Cambridge University, have hit the headlines for the wrong reasons. De Montfort University seeks to be fully inclusive and socially progressive through decolonising DMU. I'm joined by decolonising DMU Project Director, Kushika Patel, who's also the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Equality and Diversity, Interim Deputy Vice-Chancellor of De Montfort University, Simon Aldroyd, and Director of Stephen Lawrence Research Centre, Kenetta Hammond-Perry and Reader in History, to explore what decolonising means to them. So if I can come to you, Kushika, what does it mean to you? Thanks, Govinda. Decolonising DMU really came about as a result of the wanting to look at um, closing the awarding gap that our Black, Asian, minority ethnic students experience across the whole sector. So achieving a different proportion of two ones and firsts compared to their white counterparts. When we started the project, the focus was just on the curriculum and that was nationally in the sector. It was decolonising the curriculum. But the work that we did in our project actually identified that it's much bigger than that. And for me, decolonising DMU actually means looking at the structures and the processes within the whole of the university and challenging the perceptions around racial equality and racial inequality and actually going much bigger than the curriculum, looking at how we recruit students, how we recruit staff, what our senior teams look like, what our boardrooms look like, how we support promotions and how we support continuation of students and a recognition of we need to reflect society in terms of the demographics of this country but also we need to reflect and understand the histories of how we've got to where we are and when we're in a position of understanding that we start to break down what that means for our communities and ensure or work towards ensuring much better opportunity and equality for all of our staff. And that's kind of the concept of decolonising a whole institution. That's great. Thank you. Simon, how about yourself? Obviously, you play quite a leading role within the university. Yeah. Hi, Govinda. Thanks. Yeah, I guess to add to what Kashiga's already said, it was about looking at us as a university and not looking at the students. So for you know, for years we've talked about attainment in students, and and that was very much focused on the students. This turns it round to look at us as a university. I guess for me personally, using the word decolonization when we first began to talk about this was a was a big thing. Actually, it's a it's a big word to talk about. But as I've thought about this more over over the the time that we've that we've been involved with decolonization i've you know felt it's really important to include the word it certainly makes you think it gives real focus to the bigger picture i think and then allows you to bring that focus back down onto the university and the views particularly of students at the university and staff at the university so for me at the outset it was a challenging thing, I guess, to think about what 
what colonization meant and then to take that next step to think about what decolonization would mean to us as a university i think for me it's it, it it's an easy concept then to think about this the the university and not the students how we as a university operate in all our forms in everything that we do both staff students the different facets of the whole university and to then question how we do that so it's a big grown-up social science piece for us it's a it's probably possibly the biggest one that we've embarked upon in the university and we're doing it at a time of real polarization that's great thank you simon so coming to you Kenetta, i think it was quite interesting what simon pointed out that sometimes there is perhaps a lack of understanding i guess generally about what colonization was in the first place and then i guess how you dismantle it thank you again for having me i think if we think about just the term decolonization but also um, its antecedent colonization i think essentially the two are, are really decolonization is trying to get us to think about looking at a system that has been put in place that is not working for everyone um, and that's what the work of the freedom to achieve project was doing from the outset and around the attainment gap is sort of looking at a university system or university or an institution that was having outcomes that or were showing kind of disparities particularly along racialized lines and i think the language of decolonization about how we address that project is, is really important because what it does is it acknowledges that these are sort of historical conditions that it's not just the, the attainment gap is something that we can trace and map in the present but that these things have much longer historical roots and part of what i think when, when i see all universities or a number of universities rather embracing the language around decolonization to talk about this work about trying to find ways to develop structures and processes that work better for all students i'm sort of you know I, I like that idea because I think it, it's really sort of acknowledging that these things aren't new, that they're, they're historical antecedents that we have, have to grapple with, that it helped to explain the ways in which racial inequities are operating in our society today. So again, I think that question of language is, is just really important to understand that the university is one of those spaces in our contemporary society that is also reproducing some of those same um, dynamics that shape colonialism whereby you have certain kinds of hierarchies that are beneficial um, to certain groups of people and and not working for other groups of people or creating a, a certain kinds of disadvantage for other groups of people that is mapping along racial lines and so I think it's just really important to, to signal the work of this project under the banner of decolonization. It's really interesting thank you three of you so you offer a range of sort of perspectives and ideas of what decolonizing a university can actually mean in practice. I think what struck me is you highlight, all of you have highlighted some inequalities, I guess, whether that's um, in terms of attainment for students, for people in society and structural inequalities. My question to you is, surely we can address structural inequality that exists within a university or that exists within a society through other means and other ways. Um, I mean, wouldn't equality and diversity have a role within this? Do we really need to decolonize a university? So if I can jump in there first, equality and diversity is, is very important within all organizations and structures. But I think, you know, if we look at history, we look at we, we look at organizations, we look at universities, and we we all know that. Uh, equality and diversity departments exist and they have a role and they have a function 
and people understand those words and they're comfortable words and people feel that I've, I've done equality I've done diversity we might tick a box we might we might look at quotas but it, it's got to a point in the sector and I suppose in society where the language of equality and diversity has become comfortable and allows people to I would say if I was to be controversial hide behind tick boxes hide behind policies and procedures that suggest that we've done everything that we should do what it doesn't do is it doesn't confront people with some truths and some realities of history of why we've got ourselves into places where we have at the moment particularly around racism and using the language uh, you know Simon said the words of, of decolonization just those words and the working definition that we've put together as a university team looking at this project we've used the words of decolonization we've used the words of building an anti-racist university and so it takes it outside of the equality and diversity agenda which is I'm not saying it's a wrong agenda it is a good agenda because it keeps us focused and it makes us look at these things which often people find it very easy not to but something as, as you know, hardwired into our systems and structures as a country you need to to take it out you need to bring it out you need to have the challenging conversations and you need to word use some words that can be uncomfortable but that make people think and that generate debate and I think that's why yes it can be part of equality and diversity work and we are part of an equality and diversity umbrella of activity but this is such a big piece of work that needs some particular considerations that I think it's right to pull it out and think about what we're saying. Equality and diversity is the end goal decolonizing is the process for how we get there and it, it, it sort of opens up a whole different kind of conversation that makes us interrogate how did we get to the structures that are not working it makes us examine that process around you know outcomes it makes us examine that process around okay how did we get the curriculum that that we're now wanting to decolonize or that we're now wanting to to, to change or that we're now recognizing does not represent um, a kind of the kind of diverse societies that we live in. And so I think decolonizing sort of helps us to really sharpen the focus on what the goal is. And the goal is to really interrogate how we got to where we are because we have to do that work before we can actually, you know, develop any kind of action plan about how we fix it. Otherwise, whatever we try to do moving forward is going to sort of ultimately be flawed because we haven't understood the nature of the problem. We haven't understood and taken into consideration um, the, the sort of historical antecedents and all the different ways, all the different structures that have gone into play into to sort of making the conditions as they are. And I think decolonizing takes it to a, a, an entirely different place because it's asking us to really ask some questions about how things came to be. Um, and I think that's, again, a really important part of building an anti-racist university. I think I'd agree with, with both my colleagues there. Decolonization is a piece of equality and diversity, but it's a really big and really important piece. And it's, <clears throat> it's too ingrained, I guess, structurally within the university just to to apply an equality and diversity procedure to it, if you like, or an algorithm or a solution. It's far bigger than that. And, and because it is, we need, that, we need that jolt, really, of the conversation. And, and as we've just heard, the language around the conversation. Kenneth, what particularly stands out to me is like what you kind of describe decolonizing as is like a process and that we'll reach this particular end goal where equality, diversity, I guess, perhaps racism 
um, doesn't exist. But Kenetta, can I ask you, why do you think there are such strong negative associations with the notion of decolonizing? I think a lot of it comes from sort of um, the way that we sort of as a kind of society, the way that we understand or don't understand um, sort of histories around empire. Um, and I think that that's definitely sort of one of the things that's, you know, it sort of gets under people's skin about that notion. And that we think about empire as something and all the things that went along with it. We think about something that's something that happened, you know, in the 19th century. That's something that happened, you know, once the colonies, you know, got their independence, you know, in the mid 20th century. We think about that as something past. Um, and so we don't think about that those dynamics of imperialism and those histories of empire, um, you know, that they have legacies. And so I think, you know, part of a lot of people's discomfort or some people's discomfort with the language around decolonizing and the notion of decolonizing then sort of aligns you with the notion of colonialism and that we thought, you know, even if it, whatever we thought about it, we, that's something that's past and gone. Um, but that we're still living with the legacies of those things. I mean, even in this moment, it's, it's, it's hard to ignore the fact that, you know, in this current moment where sort of racial politics is gaining a lot more visual visibility, we're still living out, um, you know, the legacies of what didn't happen as a result of emancipation. And so we're, we're lo looking at sort of the failures of abolition or the ways in which, you know, these processes of of um, abolition and, and these processes of decolonizing in a kind of political sense in terms of creating independent nations didn't necessarily produce, you know, pathways to equitable citizenship or pathways to just um, and socially just outcomes in society. So those are those dynamics, you know, were put in place long a long, you know, time ago. And so we're still living with those legacies. And I think um, that kind of discomfort around the uses of these terms is also a signal that there's work to do around sort of, um, you know, having conversations and, and sort of educating more people about the ways in which those legacies that we're still seeing them persist um, even in our, in our present moment. So when I hear some of the discomfort around the uses of the term for me, I think as a university, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking this is a time for us to do our work as academics, as knowledge producers. Um, it says that that, that it's calling into view that role of the university and society to sort of share um, that, that work that we're producing and to sort of make it count in terms of, of transforming the ways that society thinks about some of these critical issues. So for me, I definitely look at it as, as a, a sign that we have work to do. And it's also, that's why I think the work of decolonizing um, in universities is so critical because it's also sort of calling into view the role of the university in society. And I think that that's something that's really, really critical. You mentioned that, that obviously it's really important that the universities try and address the, you know, the different legacies and how we've kind of come to where we are. And obviously with what's going on right now, you know, with all the Black Lives Matter, and yes, the universities are doing something, but does there need to be a bigger movement to decolonize or to recognize the legacies of decolonizing? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think this moment is, I've said this before, I think it's a kind of, you know, that people across all different aspects of society are asking different kinds of questions about um, and sort of acknowledging the ways that, that certain institutions and certain processes in society are not working for everyone. I think it's interesting to think about this moment against the backdrop of the kind of what, uh, of the lockdown and corona and the coronavirus moment, because one of the things that that moment made us think about is like, okay, we don't think we're ever going to go back to a world necessarily anytime soon 
that looks like, you know, February 2020. So I think all of that sort of couples as sort of informs this moment where we're seeing, you know, people making demands around a world that is not working for them, that they want to see work differently and, and to make those kinds of, of, of demands around that and to sort of question the spaces that they've been operating in. And for me, again, you know, I go back to the, the role of the university. I think it's not just the university's responsibility to do that work, but I think the university has a critical role to play in part because, you know, we are training, you know, the next group of teachers, the next generation of teachers that are going to go into society. We are training the next group of doctors and hair, uh, healthcare uh, practitioners that are going to go into the world and make decisions about, you know, how that healthcare is being delivered. Um, we're going to be training, um, you know, the next generation of historians and political scientists and people in all sorts of, of fields to do that work. And so that's why I do think um, the university um, taking that look at itself um, through the lens of a kind of decolonizing project and sort of really thinking about what it means to be an anti-racist uh, university is, is just critical work in society. That's brilliant. Thank you, Kenneta. Simon, you wanted to say something and I interrupted you. Yeah, it was, it was just, just on um, uh, uh, Kenneta's comments around, around the language of, of decolonization and colonization itself. And I think, um, you know, the, you, you asked you asked around negative associations with with that language and i think there's no doubt that there are negative associations with it and i think broadly in this country you know discussion of colonization and discussion of empire has never really been had in a negative sense um i i certainly can't remember as having conversations about colonization and empire in a negative sense either as an adult or or as a kid growing up and so I think that those negative associations do exist there out of poor understanding of what colonialization was and, and what empire was. And, you know, there, there's, there are plenty of people, I think, in, in, in the UK who look back on empire and colonialization in a, in a, in a very positive way. And that's a, that's a matter of fact, I think. Um, so... So it's no surprise that, that we would have negative associations with the language, but I think that all the more important that we that we do use that language in that way, as I said, to 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 jolt us into that conversation and that discussion about um, how we look at structures differently. Just just following on from that, Govinda, just um, you know, there's been a lot written recently about why the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, have taken off the way they have. Um, you know, George Floyd's killing. Um, was horrendous and and the way you know it, it's available all across social media and 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 the full you know eight minutes and and 49 seconds of it but um why is it so different this time around because you know you can see the list of names of 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 black people in the states um who've been killed and then we've got you know miscarriages of justice in this country but this kind of was a tipping moment and one of the things that i found interesting that i've read and that i've seen was um the diversity of the people who are protesting and in terms of the education of what Simon was saying no we know our education systems don't teach the reality of empire they teach the rose-tinted version of empire the the part of empire that that the uh, the British see as the positive the benefits of, of to the UK but not the realities for the countries that were colonized and the historical legacies of those but the social media, internet, the, the World Wide Web has created a space for the next generation of young people 
to not just depend on what they learn in schools and they've been reading and learning a hell of a lot online and we've got so many black writers out there now who are writing about this and are more accessible and I think the next generation of BAME and white young people are reading and educating themselves and I think that's where we're seeing much more of a diversity of protesters and much more of a drive so I think the political activism is moving forward and hopefully the momentum will continue so that organisations and universities and, and governments are required to look at themselves in the mirror. So then Kashika, staying with you, where do you see then the potential biggest impact upon staff and students happening or taking place to them through this process of decolonising DMU? It's a slow process. I think it's going to be a slow process, but I think one of the, one of the greatest impacts is the opportunity and the ability and the willingness of people to have more open conversations. It's like Kaneta said, until we start unpicking and understanding why we are where we are, it's really difficult to make change because you can impose change on people. You can create action plans and you can tell people you have to do this within your curriculum. You have to do this within your recruitment processes. But unless people understand the reason why or have the opportunity to question and constructively challenge, those changes won't be impactful and those won't be sustainable. So I think the biggest impact of this, pro this project of decolonizing DMU will be the opening up of conversations. They're not gonna be easy and they're not gonna be straightforward, but to be able to have the conversations, to be able to understand and see through different lenses and through different perspectives and to better understand our histories, talking about it, recognizing that change has to happen and then creating that change to go with it. Having that type of environment, which is not common, is what will create the change that we need to be able to decolonise our institution. Would anybody else like to add anything to that? I, I, I can add uh, something, Govinda. I'd agree with Kashiko. We're, we're a university, so we've, we've got students who generally are in their formative years and, and will become, as we've heard from Kaneta, will become the next generation of all these professionals and so on that we're, that we're building. It does offer and has offered a this opportunity to have a conversation now and, and, and all the activity around Black Lives Matter has also given us that opportunity to have the conversation in a way that we wouldn't have done before. We're As a university, by definition, we're a community. I guess with our student number and staff number, we're of over 30,000 people. So that's a big community and uh, the, the, the opportunity to have those much more open conversations now is there and we've really got to grasp it. And some of that goes back to, as we, you know, again, talking about negative associations, but it goes back to having discussions with staff and students about their own anxieties about, about decolonization and what that means. Not, not necessarily that, that it's a disagreement with the approach, but there are anxieties about it in terms of their, their role, their involvement, their understanding. So Kashika, can I ask, how do you create an environment where people can decolonize I guess their teaching or their practice? I think Govindra it kind of stems from my last answer in terms of being able to have open conversations that's got to be the starting point of being able to have the open conversations and that then will help create an environment where where we can look to decolonizing our curriculum and our processes and our procedures and if that conversation can happen then we can put opportunities in place to support staff to work with them for them to understand what that means, particularly for them as an individual, as a person,
but also in their work area. And I think it's not just as easy as just expecting people to go, all oh, right, well, I understand what colonization meant and I understand what decolonizing means. So I'm just going to get on with it. It's never that easy because there's, there's so much to, to kind of unpick. And what does it mean for my subject area? And what does it mean if I'm recruiting students or staff? So as an institution, I think our job would be have the conversations, but then put in processes and structures and systems to support staff, provide examples from within our own university and within from other universities, not just from the UK, but globally, to, to give people ideas and support and the opportunity to, to, to do things wrong because people will do things wrong. So I think having the conversations has to be backed up by having the support systems and structures and the toolkits. I was just going to sort of echo that point. I think it, you we have to sort of have that kind of whole systems approach. Um, which is, you know, about creating the space to have conversations and to sort of sit in the discomfort of some of those um, conversations. I mean, quite frankly, you know, for some people, literally having a dialogue where you're using the term race and racism is going to be unsettling for some people. And so we have to provide the room um, to do that and to sort of have those uncomfortable conversations. But I also do think um, like like Kashika was suggesting, it does have to be coupled um, with that kind of, of movement around certain kinds of actions that we want to see differently. Like, for instance, you know, DMU has set, you know, you know, wanting to recognize with the attainment gap that we want to close that attainment gap as a university. I do think, you know, institutions can think about what are the targets that we want to set around um, certain basic issues around representation. Um, you know, what are the things that we we recognize in terms of the composition of things like our academic staff, uh, racial and ethnic composition in relation to our, our student body uh, composition? You know, what is what are some of those targets that we want to keep in mind and that those become things that are not just, you know, said that we want to sort of change, but like that there are some real fixed smart objectives that are that are put around those things that, that are communicated um, from the top down. I think that's really, really important um, because again, just like, you know, one of the examples that I, I like to use is that, you know, we're having this debate over like statues and like some people talk about removing them, but also part of the conversation is like, okay, well, like a statue also celebrates certain things. It sort of reinforces a particular version of history and it reinforces particular people as celebrated people in history. And, and I would say the same thing applies in terms of who we see in our classrooms. We're also reinforcing to our students and, and really to a wider audience whose knowledge is valued, who we see as legitimate knowledge producers, who we see as the architects of our curriculum. I think, again, I do think it's possible to really have some concrete objectives um, and sort of targets about where we want to be attached to that, that, that go beyond just wanting um, to have certain kinds of conversations. So again, it's just more so echoing um, of what Kashika has said that like the conversation also has to be married up with um, shifts in processes, shifts in, in thinking about certain kinds of outcomes that we want to achieve as a university. In, in, you know, in terms of the things that Kashika said around how we do this and, and, and the opportunity we give for conversations and, and the opportunity we give to look at the structure of the university. Also being up front, particularly with staff and students, I guess, about this is, is not about an action plan. It's not about putting an action plan together. And if we do this action plan, everything will be fine. It's being honest about this being a, a, a long journey, actually. 
decolonization is way beyond an action plan. When we're we're fully into decolonization in terms of looking across the university and all staff involved, that it becomes part of us. It becomes part of the university. Simon, and I I guess for Kashika as well, even though we've kind of talked sort of about how decolonizing is not just about one thing, it seems to be like it's lots of little aspects that are coming together and that we're all in a process together and we, we get to an ending at some point. I think a lot of people sort of perhaps equate decolonizing for preferential recruitment or promotion practices for minority ethnic academics or minority ethnic professional staff. Do you think that that there can be a danger then, perhaps that ethnic staff are considered less competent. I think there's no doubt that that's probably one of the ways that it could be viewed. Seeing our university through the eyes of a, an 18-year-old BAME student coming to our university for the first time, does that student recognise themselves in the university, in its infrastructure, in its academic offerings, its societies, its social aspects, its staff? The answer at the moment is no. So there is a big piece of work to do there. There's no doubt about that. There is that possibility of negativity around that, around how's that viewed. But that then takes us back to some of the conversations and some of the pieces around understanding that we need to um, return to. Kashika, did you want to add anything to that? You know, I think your question about could it could it lead to a perception of, I think actually it's not a could it lead to a perception of, I think there already is a perception of, well, we haven't got BAME people in positions of seniority or in professorial positions because people are thinking, well, if they've not got it, that's because they're maybe not good enough to get it. And I think that's a lot of unpicking to do. And I agree with Kineta's point that, that uh, there should be outcomes. We should be looking at what would we hope to achieve and actually, it's about educating um, people about some of the things that some people won't even have thought about, that when you sit on an interview panel yourself, what are you looking for in that person? And when you look at psychology and you look at, uh, at you know, social behaviours, we know that people um, look for something they recognise and look for something that they're comfortable with. And if the panel is predominantly white male panel, they're going to look for something they recognise and something that they're comfortable with. And they're not going to look at some of the characteristics and experiences and profiles that um, BAME um, applicants or women might come with if they're if it's a predominantly uh, a white male panel. And there has to be, you know, some of that understanding of it's not because people aren't good enough. It's looking at our structures and processes again and educating people. You know, this comes in terms of um, understanding your own biases, recognizing your own privileges. And it's not, it's not the person deficit model, it's the process and system and structural deficit model. That's great, thank you. Kaneta, was there anything you wanted to add? I totally agree with Kashika. I, I think, again, those, those perceptions are there. I mean, the, the, that sense of when that representation isn't there, it comes with that narrative of like, okay, well, there wasn't someone good enough to be there. I also think it, you know, part of the conversation that is attached to that, again, it's, it's, it's about sort of thinking about you know, what outcomes do we want to then see, but also marrying that up with the conversations that need to be had to sort of create the kind of knowledge that we need to make those decisions is a kind of, you know, conversations around, you know, what does positive action mean? You know, what, how, how can we use these laws and, and positive action laws, you know, affirmative action laws in the context of the U.S., they never came with this question of, 
you know, that you always had to have, you know, a competency test. It wasn't about selecting someone solely on the basis of race and ethnicity to fulfill some sort of pre-selected quota. Um, it was always about recognizing race and ethnicity as value added in terms of a larger diversity issue to someone who was already demonstratively qualified and competent for that position. And I think, um, again, the, these are about, you know, part of, of, of those, that, that law and that those provisions within the Equality Act are about sort of, you know, recognizing the ways in which, you know, certain kinds of institutions want to create an environment that represents diversity, equality, and inclusion as outcomes. And so how do we get there is we, we have to sort of recognize that it, A, is not existing in the ways that we want to, but in order to get there, we're going to recognize those things as value added to already qualified, competent people who are applying and create the processes and the cultural mindset around that to recognize that. Thank you to all my guests. I hope you enjoyed listening to what is an insightful conversation about decolonizing. You can find details on the Decolonizing DMU website in our show notes for the DMU working definition of what decolonizing is. Next time, we're going to examine how lecturers at DMU discuss race and racism in the classroom as part of the learning journey. Do join us again, and you've been listening to Decolonizing DMU, and I apologize, we have recorded this in lockdown, so we're not in a real studio. Thank you very much.